Okay, we'll uh, continue our fellowship on the pattern of Deborah. Um, I listened to a, quite a few of the uh, prophecies after the last meeting, and I'm very thankful to the Lord that the sisters had the grace to receive a word which <clears throat> is not the easiest word to receive. I, I surely do understand that. And um, before I go on, I'd like to just remind you of a familiar passage in the New Testament. And that is Matthew chapter 13. You know, in Matthew 13, you have the parable of the sower. And the sower mm -hmm. sows the seed and the seed falls on four different kinds of ground. And we know from that parable that the four different kinds of ground are four different conditions of the heart. We all hear exactly the same thing. The seed is the same. The word is the same. But we receive different things according to the condition of our heart. <clears throat> and I just like to point out to you, although we call that the parable of the sower, it, it's actually a parable on hearing the word, on hearing the word. So first the Lord gives the parable. Then he says in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then they didn't understand the parable. So he says, for this reason, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Then he quotes the prophet Isaiah. <clears throat> then he says, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Then he interprets the parable. And in his interpretation, he talks about hearing the word. So he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which has been sown in his heart. This is the one sown beside the way. That's a hardened, a hardened heart, a heart <coughs> that has been hardened by traffic in the world, by involvement in the world. And the one <coughs> sown on the rocky places, <coughs> this is the one who hears the word, and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he does not have root in himself, but lasts only for a time. Then, and the one sown in the thorns, this is he who hears the word, and the anxiety of the age, and the deceitfulness of riches utterly choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. <clears throat> But the one sown on the good earth, this is who hears the word 
and understands. Have you ever noticed, look how many times in this short portion, he uses the word hear. And we all hear it, but according to the condition of our heart, it profits us or it does not profit us. So we always need an exercise when we hear the word to to deal with our heart, to deal with our heart so that our heart is in the right condition to receive a word that may not be that enjoyable to us. You know, not all the words in the Bible are meant for our enjoyment. Some are, but some of them are meant to warn us. Some of them are meant to disciple us. Some are meant to convict us. We shouldn't think that every word is for our enjoyment. Every word is for our profit. But not every word is for enjoyment in our concept of enjoyment. Okay, I just want to give this brief opening word to say that I realize some of these things go against our thought and go against the tide of the age. We're in a battle. We're in a battle. And uh, for this kind of word to profit us, we need to pray and uh, deal with our heart so that the word could penetrate. It could penetrate and bear fruit. Okay. There's two big points concerning Deborah. We covered the first one. The first one was her submission, which is amazing. You know, we had this statement in the first outline on Deborah. It said the first and highest function of the sisters is submission. I know that surprised a lot of people. And think about it. Deborah's usefulness was due to her submission. Had she not submitted to Barak, she would not have been useful. Not only that, Barak's usefulness also depended on Deborah's submission because Barak needed Deborah. And then the contrast, Delilah was not useful because she had no submission. And Samson's usefulness was annulled by Delilah's lack of submission. Well, you know, even the worldly people have a proverb. There's a worldly proverb. It says, behind every good man is what? A better woman. <laughs> and even the, even the worldly people know that. For a man to have a proper function, he needs a match who enables him to have that function. Uh, As one who has been serving the Lord full time for many years, I would tell you, I couldn't do it. I could not do it. 
without my wife because she's got the same vision and uh, the same goal that I have. She's a real Deborah. Thank God she's not a Delilah. (laughs) So this is the first wonderful point concerning Deborah is that she was able to function even as a judge. This is astounding that she could function as a judge because of her submission. Had she not submitted, she would have lost that function. Now, the second point, Deborah says this about herself. She rose up not only as a judge of Israel, but as a mother in Israel. I like this very much. You know, I've, I've shared this with some of you before. Forgive me. It's a little bit personal, but I just share it anyway. I lost my father when I was 12 years old. My mother was a 39-year-old widow with nine children. And you know what? We did okay because we had our mother. We had our mother. If we had lost our mother, oh, I don't think we would have been okay. But we were just fine because we had our mother. This shows that in the family life and in the church life, the mothers are so crucial. And yes, I come back to this point. The function is different. The brothers have the function of administration They have the function of taking the lead. But in the practicality of the church life, the sisters are more important. They are. So never despise the fact that you're a sister and never wish that you were a brother. Let me tell you, it's not that great. (laughs) You're, You're just fine. You're exactly where you should be. So this is a function that's really reserved for the sisters, that they would be a mother in the church life. So let's consider this a little bit. You know, in Acts 16, Paul writes, excuse me, in Romans 16, Paul writes to the church in Rome. And you remember At the beginning of Romans, he said he hadn't been to Rome yet, but he really wanted to go to Rome. But when you get to chapter 16, he knows so many names of the saints in Rome. I don't I don't know how he knows that, but he does. And what's amazing about it. I'm not sure about some of those names because, you know, they're they're not familiar names. But I do know quite a few of them are sisters. You know, it's Paul didn't just take account of the brothers. He took account of the sisters and he knew the names of the sisters. And 
like I say, I don't know about every one of the, those names, but who's the first one he mentions? A sister. He doesn't mention the elders. Greet the elders in Rome. No. He says, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister. You know, he doesn't talk about our brothers, but he does talk about our sister. It's very, very interesting. So he he talks about Phoebe. He talks about Prisca. And he, he talks about Prisca before Aquila, before her husband. Why? Because Aquila's usefulness depended on Prisca. He talks about Mary. He talks about the mother of Rufus and his mother. We'll, we'll get back to this. He talks about the sister of Nereus. He talks about Julia. I don't know who all these people are, but it's astounding, isn't it? He mentioned so many sisters. Well, how should we understand this? We should understand this to mean that in the proper church life, which they had there in Rome, when the church life is normal, when the church life is proper, the sisters are functioning in a, in a way that helps the entire church. So A says, <clears throat> A says, when the church life in practicality reaches a peak, there should be some real mothers in, the, in every church. In Romans 16, 13, Paul says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, as well as mine. Now, in fact, the mother of Rufus was not Paul's mother, not in the flesh. Rufus was not Paul's brother, and his mother was not Paul's mother. Paul's talking about a spiritual mother. The apostle Paul needed a spiritual mother. Can you believe it? You might say, Paul's the greatest apostle. He's much greater than all the other brothers. He's much greater than the sisters. He just takes care of other people. Nobody takes care of him. No, no. It's just like the human life. Everybody needs a mother. Everybody needs a mother, including the Apostle Paul. Okay, small one. The Apostle Paul needed a mother. And we need sisters as well as a mother. Without a sister as a mother to take care of them, all those who bear the burden for the Lord's service would be sorrowful. Paul was one who bore the burden for the Lord's service. I tell you, I I am not equating myself with the Apostle Paul in any way, but I just testify to you, those who bear the burden for the Lord's service, mostly, if you forgive me for saying this, mostly people want things from us. You know, they need, they, they need our time. They need our fellowship. They need our prayer. They need a lot of things, and we are expected to provide it. But you know what? 
we need a mother too. <laughs> we can serve, but we also need a mother. We certainly need some to pray and to care for us. Uh, we all need the care of spiritual mothers whose care is our real nourishment and our real protection. I thank the Lord that he has provided this in his recovery for the Lord's workers. There are spiritual mothers, but sisters, every saint in the church needs a spiritual mother. Even the younger sisters need a spiritual mother, not just the brothers. The sisters need a spiritual mother. Don't you love your mom? I was very close to my mother. Unfortunately, I lost her when I was 40. Even a year after she passed away, I would pick up the telephone to call her. And then I realized, oh, I can't call her. We need mothers. We need mothers. And that's just the picture. That's just the human life. In the spiritual life, we need mothers. Paul's having a spiritual mother indicates that the saints in the church life in Rome had a life transfer. Through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, Okay, I know this is not a common word. We're not accustomed to this phrase, but it will become clear as we go through this. They had a life transfer. And that transfer involves an experience of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. The best way to have a life transfer is by following the pattern of Paul who did not determine to know anything but the all-inclusive Christ and this one crucified. Here, let me say a word. Paul did not want to know the saints according to the flesh. He only wanted to know Christ and Christ crucified. Sisters, please forgive me. I'm glad I'm thousands of miles away because if you want to throw anything, it won't hit me because I'm just too far away. <laughs> um, sometimes the sisters, okay, I'm going to use a bad word. Are you ready? Get your rocks ready. Get your tomatoes ready. Sometimes the sisters gossip about the saints and their excuse is well we have to know the real situation and then we can pray is that right no that is to know the saints according to the flesh and and what i have observed is by the time the sisters gossip about a saint, there's no prayer. Now, I'm not just picking on the sisters. The brothers do it too. But the sisters are more apt to do that. 
So this is not, that's natural. That's not a life transfer. That's knowing people naturally. And it's caring for people in a natural way. I actually don't need to know all of the human details to pray. And even if I did, I might just pray a natural prayer. Oh, you mean that, oh gosh, the sickness turned into an infection and the infection, oh, we got to pray. It sounds right. It sounds right. But it's not right. It's natural. How about this? Oh, Lord, our brother is ill. Come to him in this illness and supply him with your resurrection life. In this illness, may he gain Christ for the sake of the body of Christ. In this illness, may you operate in him whatever you need to gain in him through this illness. See, that's not natural. That's not natural. And I don't even know what his illness is, and I don't need to know. So let me just say this. When we talk about being a mother, you have to do it not in the natural life. I, I know some sisters, they mean very well. They really do mean well. But when they care for the saints, they do it in the natural life. And that damages the saints. It doesn't help them. We need spiritual mothers, not natural mothers. We all have, we all have natural mothers already. We don't need another one. We need spiritual mothers. Okay. Can you, can you receive this word? Do you have the ears for it, or is it too hard? Um, I hope it's not too hard, because as I say, the worst thing we can do, and not just the sisters, the brothers too. I know brothers like this. They, they say, well, I'm shepherding the saints, but their so-called shepherding, it's all natural. Oh, you need a house. Okay, I'll take you. I'll, I'll help you find a house. Oh, you need a job. Okay, I'll help you find a job. Uh, it sounds good. It's all, all in the natural realm. It's all in the natural realm. So this is not peculiar to the sisters. This is all of us. We can't live in the natural life if we're going to be a spiritual father or a spiritual mother to the saints don't forget the word spiritual, okay? We're not just a mother. We're spiritual mother. We're not just a father. We're spiritual father. Okay, B says, the gospel of John is a book on life, not on the natural life, but on the transferred and transformed life. Before I go on, let me point out to you, in the Gospel of John, look at the relationship between Jesus and Mary. Jesus, in his 
dealing with his mother, he never lived in the natural life, not at all. He always honored Mary. He never dishonored her, but he didn't have a natural relationship with her, did did he? And it began from the time he was 12. When he was in the temple, Mary came, and she was a typical mother. The indication there is she was a little bit angry with Jesus. Where have you been? We've been looking everywhere for you. His answer was not disrespectful, but it also was not natural. He said, of course, I would be in the temple. Where else would I be? I'm taking care of my father's business. Wow. Then at the wedding feast in Cana, Mary had all kinds of good ideas The Lord just ignored her because he was following the father. Then another time, he was in a house and he was speaking the word of God to a group of disciples. And one of them told him, they said, your mother and your sisters and your brothers are outside and they're worried about you. Because you haven't had anything to eat. Natural life. Natural life. Here he is serving the Lord. Here he is speaking the word of God. His mother's like, you need to eat something. So he said, listen to what he said. He said, that's not my mother. Those aren't my brothers. Those aren't my sisters. These people here in the house who listen to the word of God and do the will of God, that's my mother. That's my brother. That's my sister. Wow. Not living in the natural life. Not having a natural relationship with his mother. But at the same time, never dishonoring his mother. Then what happens at the end of his life, while he's hanging on the cross, he's taking care of his mother. Think about it. He's dying. He's hanging on the cross. And John is there, the apostle John, and his mother is there. And he says to John, behold your mother. He says to Mary, behold your son. And from that day, John took care of Mary. (coughs) What happened? You know, Mary was John's aunt. She wasn't his mother. She was his aunt. But uh, there was a life transfer. Okay, now let me read the point. The Gospel of John is a book on life, not on the natural life, but on the transferred life and transformed life. Originally, John was not Mary's son, and Mary was not John's mother, but by Christ's life-releasing death, by his life-dispensing resurrection, and by his life union with them, 
his beloved disciple could be one with him and become the son of his mother. And she could become the mother of his beloved disciple. What's the point here? The point is that in our care for the saints, in our motherly care, or in my case, a fatherly care, in our care for the saints, it has to be something in resurrection. Our natural care, our natural life needs to pass through death. And then our care for the saints, our shepherding of the saints will be in resurrection. That's the point. Okay, C says our first relationship is in the flesh. But the second is in the spirit. That is in the transferred life. Because we have the second birth, we surely have the second relationship. The second family relationship with the real sisters and the real mothers. Now, I give you a brief testimony. When I was um, a university student, I, uh, I received Christ, and I came into the church life, and my mother and all eight of my siblings were unsaved. I was the only person who knew the Lord, And then I came into the church life. And my mother was so upset. And, um, you know, she wanted me to do all the things, especially all the holidays, like Christmas. And she said, what kind of church do you go to? They, they have all these meetings during the holidays, then you can't spend time with your family. It's a terrible church. And I asked the Lord many, many, many times. I was quite a young man. I was 18 years old. I said, Lord, how can I honor my mother and live a life absolutely for you? It seems to me I can't do both. I can't do both. And I prayed this many, many times. Then one day the Lord showed me. That's what I had to do. That's what I had to do in my human life. I had to honor my mother, who really didn't fully realize who Jesus was. And his his brothers and sisters did not realize who he was. In fact, there's a verse in the Gospels that tells us even his brothers did not believe in him. That's talking about his siblings. His siblings did not believe in him. Anyway, the Lord showed me I did that already. I did live a life that's absolute for God the Father, and I honored my mother. And I live in you, so you can do it. From that day, the Lord began to give me the wisdom how to do that. And eventually, I'm happy to tell you, my dear mother received Christ and came into the church life when she was 65 years old. It could have happened earlier, but... 
it was my fault. It took me a long time to figure it out. But anyway, my point is, our care cannot be natural. And if it's in resurrection, it will bear the fruit of resurrection. Now, D is an important point. If the sisters exercise their spirit of prayer and faith to be real mothers, they will realize how selfish they are and how much they are in themselves. I think many of the mothers can testify to this point. Having good children in the spirit will expose them to the uttermost. Furthermore, the sisters will grow and mature in life by taking care of some spiritual children. You know, having natural children is quite an exposure. Oh, my goodness. Not only to the mother, but to the father. Ay, ay, ay. I've never been exposed more by anything in my whole life than my children. And my wife would tell you the same thing. But, you know, those are natural children. Spiritual children expose us even more. We start to realize all kinds of things that we are short in that we never knew and we never could know. We couldn't know it until we had to have something to take care of others, and we found ourselves lacking. And we realized, I only care for myself. I only live in myself. I don't, I actually don't have the heart for others. What a great opportunity this is to experience Christ and to gain Christ. So, my sisters, I know some of you, under the Lord's sovereignty, some of you won't have natural children. I don't understand that. I don't know why. I don't know why. One of the, one of the brothers I serve with where I am, a great brother. His wife is great. The Lord never gave them any natural children. But you know what? They have a lot of spiritual children. And spiritual children will test you even more than natural children, I assure you. So I would like to encourage you, sisters, all of you, all of you should be mothers. Even the young sisters, you say, well, I'm a young sister. I, 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 I'm a child, not a mother. Well, there's somebody younger than you. There's someone newer than you. But I would say in particular, and I I looked at the uh, statistics for this training, and we have we have quite a few middle-aged sisters and older sisters. This group of sisters really needs to be the mothers in the church life. The young couples, I'm just so burdened for this point because I see the struggles of the young couples. And, you know, even those who may have graduated from the full-time training, I see their struggles in their marriage life, in their family life. I see divorces. 
too many divorces among the, that age group. You know, by, by the Lord's mercy, my wife and I are in our 42nd year of marriage. Divorce was never contemplated and it never will be. You know, one time, Billy Graham's wife, they were married over 70 years and Billy Graham passed away and they asked Ruth Graham, his wife, they interviewed her. They said, in that time that you were married, those 70 years, did you ever consider divorce? She said, no, I never considered divorce. I did consider murder, but I never considered divorce. That's, that's probably what my wife would say. We, we, divorce is not in our dictionary. But seriously, my sisters, what do they need? What do the 30-year-old sisters need? They need a 50-year-old sister to be a mother to them. And according to Titus, I know I've read this verse to you before, please forgive me, but I'll read it again. According to Titus chapter 2, Paul says, older women, likewise to be in demeanor as befits those who engage in sacred things, not slanderers, nor enslaved by much wine, teachers of what is good, that they may train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be of a sober mind, pure, workers at home, good, subject to their own husbands, that the word of God would not be blasphemed. What is that? A spiritual mother. The younger sisters need a spiritual mother to train them how to be a wife, how to be a mother, how to, how to learn to submit to your own husband. Um, all of those things. They need help. They need help. And who can help them? The brothers can't help them. Sorry. I can give them the verses, but you can give them the life experience. So I hope all of us would go to the Lord. I really mean this. I hope we would go to the Lord and consider before the Lord. Lord, who would you, who would you burden me for? And don't try to take care of 20 people. Nobody can do that. That's why, you know, the picture is a human family. I told you, my mother had nine children. Wow, that's too many. I only had two. I could barely handle those two. And, you know, the, this is why you don't see families with 20 kids. 
Nobody has that kind of capacity. Even the Lord in his human living, how many people did he really intimately care for in three and a half years? You may say 12. I would say, let's leave Judas out of it. That makes 11. And out of those 11, it was really three. It was Peter, James, and John. We hardly know anything about those other eight. And what this shows us is that our actual capacity, I mean, if you're going to bear a child and care for them, our actual capacity isn't that many people, which means we all have to do it. And we can do it according to our capacity. If you can manage one, take care of one. If you can take care of two, take care of two. If you can take care of three, take care of three. But what if all the sisters had a spiritual adoption? You adopted some spiritual children, not according to your preference, not according to your taste, not according to your selection, but according to the Lord's leading and his burden, what kind of church life would we have? You know, if you read Luke, the night before the Lord called the 12, it says he spent the entire night in prayer to God. Then the next morning, he called the 12. Now, it doesn't say what he was praying for, but it's certainly implied He must have asked the Father, Father, everywhere I go, there are great crowds. There are hundreds, there are thousands. Out of all these people, who are the ones that you would commit to me? Who are the ones you give me? And I can prove this from John chapter 17. In his final prayer in John 17, The Lord told the Father, he said, of all those you gave me, I did not lose one except the son of perdition, who is Judas. So it's clear the Father directed the Lord. These are the ones you need to concentrate on. And no doubt he told the Lord, Peter, James, and John, concentrate on them. You know, Peter, James, and John, not that promising, not that good. Peter's a rough, tough fisherman, uneducated. James and John are the sons of thunder, not so great. But the Lord didn't make a natural selection, did he? He let the Father burden him. So I hope we would all do this. The brothers, too. We all need to do this in the church life. Okay, let me go on. Um, Point E. If the sisters love the Lord and mean business, I like Brother Lee's, I like his utterance here. We have to mean business. That means we have to be very serious about it. Do we mean business? 
to be for the church life in the Lord's recovery? If so, they need to consider themselves as serving nurses, as church nurses who give nursing care in the church as a true hospital. Wow. All the sisters need to be serving sisters by prayer and loving mothers by the most excellent way of love in order to help the needy ones and the younger ones in their spiritual life and church life. This is the best way to receive the blessing, the growth, the spirituality, and the real enjoyment of the Lord. And I say again, this is not something in the natural life. Yes, the sisters have a in the natural life, the sisters have a maternal instinct. I saw it with my wife when my first child was born. I was like, all of a sudden, my wife became a mother and she knew how to do it. And, 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 and she really gave herself to it. Uh, that's in the female life. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the divine life. Did you know that in the divine life, there's a maternal instinct? There is. There is. Let me read this to you. This is uh, Isaiah 66, 12 and 13. <clears throat> Thus says Jehovah, I am now extending to her peace like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream and you will nurse you will be carried on the hip and you will be bounced on the knees as one whom his mother comforts so will I comfort you babies always like to be bounced on the knees don't they did you know the triune God is a real mother? In his life is the real spiritual mother life. He's not only a father to us. He's a father and a mother. He's everything to us. Okay, now we come to the second uh, Roman numeral on this outline. And these are verses which we are somewhat familiar with. But I hope I can give you a new perspective by looking at the context. And that's Judges 5, 15 and 16. We actually read them at the beginning of this meeting. The Bible says that at that time among God's people, there were great resolutions in heart and great searchings of heart. To understand a verse like this, we have to look at the context. Actually, to understand any verse in the Bible, you have to look at the context. The context of this is a war, a war against Sisera, 
a war against the king of Canaan. In Judges 4, which we covered in the last message, uh, Deborah and Barak and Jael, plus 10,000 men, defeated the king of Canaan and Jael, the mountain goat, took care of Sisera. Well, Judges chapter 5 is the song of victory after the defeat of Sisera. And in that chapter, let me just read a little bit to you so that you get the context, because I'm afraid we quote these verses a lot, but we we actually quote them out of context, which it's okay. We can borrow them for that purpose, but let's do the context today. So uh, we already read the first part of Judges 5, where the leaders took the lead. The people offered themselves willingly. Thank the Lord. Now, listen to this. And the princes in Issachar were with Deborah. And Issachar was true to Barak. Issachar is one of the 12 tribes. Into the valley they were sent behind him. Then she goes on to another tribe, Reuben. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolutions of heart, in heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds? listening to the pipings for the flock. In the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Then she touches another tribe, and as, well, first she says, Gilead stayed across the Jordan. In other words, did not join the battle. And as for Dan, why did he remain with the ships? He didn't join the battle. Asher sat at the shore of the sea and stayed at his landings. He didn't join, but Zebulun did. Zebulun was a people that despised their own lives, even unto death. And Naphtali, on the heights of the field. Okay, I I think you get the point. Here's the point. Deborah praised the tribes that went into battle and she chastised the tribes that did not. And Reuben, Reuben was on the fence. Reuben was wavering. Reuben was trying to decide, shall I join the battle or shall I not? If I join the battle, I might die. So maybe I won't join the battle. Look at Dan. He's not joining. Look at Gilead. He's not joining. Maybe I shouldn't join. Then Reuben had great searchings of heart, great resolutions of heart. And you know what? Join the battle. Join the battle. This is a picture 
my sisters, that we have to consider how are we going to live our life? How will we live? Will we live a life for ourselves? Will we live a life for a nice family, a nice marriage, a nice house, a nice car? Or will we live a life fighting the battle for God's purpose on the earth? It's a real choice. It's a real choice. The older I get, I'm, I know people always guess my age younger, but I'm, I'm in my mid-60s. The older I get, I, I think about this because some of my siblings have passed away. Some of my coworkers have passed away. And I think, what, what are they going to say about me? Are they going to say, what are they going to put on my tombstone if I'm not raptured? I hope I'm raptured. But if I'm not, what are they going to say? Here lies Mark Robbie. Oh, devoted, devoted husband, loving father, blah, blah, blah. No, I hope not. I hope it will say this person gave everything for Christ and the church. That's, that's how I want to be remembered. That's how I want to be remembered. Anyway, the point here is we need to make a decision how we're going to live our life. And Brother Lee gave a testimony one time. He said he had a serious consideration before the Lord when he was young when he was young. And he said, if I'm going to be a man, I have to be a Christian. I just can't live the human life without being a Christian. If I'm going to live the human life, I must be a Christian. Then if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to take the way of the church life. But that didn't stop. It didn't stop there. And he said, if I'm going to take the way of the church life, I need to take it absolutely. He made that decision when he was a young man, and he never departed from it his whole life. And I tell you, I made a very similar decision as a young man. And I know we have some younger sisters among us. Younger sisters, you are ready to make such a decision now, and it's not too late for any of us. Okay, let me read a little more. To have a great resolve or a great resolution in heart is to make a decision. We make a choice. You know how we live our life? It's our choice. What's going to be the top priority in our life? It's our choice. We have to decide, is our family going to be first? Is our marriage going to be first? Is our material things going to be first? Or is Christ and the church going to be first? And to have a great searching, listen to this, is to devise a plan to live to the Lord and to live out the Lord 
for his up-to-date recovery in the building up of his body, the preparation of the bride, and the ushering in of his kingdom in its manifestation. So there's two things here. There's a decision, a choice, and a plan to carry out that choice. I've told some of you before, but when I, when I proposed to my wife 42 years ago, I told her, I said, uh, dear, I said, um, I'd very much like to get engaged. I said, but there's, there's three things I need to tell you. And after I tell you these three things, I'm pretty sure you won't want to get engaged. Pretty romantic, huh? I said, the first thing you have to understand is I have a very good job, but I have absolutely no intention of keeping that job. I'm going to serve the Lord my whole life. So what I can offer you is poverty. said, if you marry me, you will be poor. That will scare off most people already, right? And then it gets worse. Then I told her, I said, the other thing you have to understand is you will never be first. Christ and the church will always be first. I told her, I said, you'll never be third either. You'll you'll always be second. You're right behind Christ in the church. But you're not above, but you're not above Christ in the church. And I even told her, I said, don't make me first. Please don't make me first. I don't want to be first. I want to be second. I want Christ in the church to be first. And then I told her the third one. I was pretty sure I was going to ruin everything. The third thing I told her, I said, well, if we get engaged or if we get married, you have to be willing to live anywhere on the whole earth. We may not live in the United States. We might live anywhere. I think that will scare off most of the sisters. But my wife said to me, That's exactly the kind of life I want to live. And that's why we're happy this many years later. You know why? Everything I told her came true. Everything. (laughs) And we have lived our life that way. And we're happy. We're happy to. I had you read 2 Corinthians 5, 14, I I should have also had you read verse 15. That was my mistake. Uh, Let me go back and read you those two verses and share with you something about those two verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constrains us. Because we have judged this, 
that one died for all, therefore all died. Then verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live may no longer live to themselves, but to him who died for them and has been raised. Live to him. Let me tell you something about this verse. In 1978, we're still talking about resolutions of heart and searchings of heart. In 1978, I was a university student. One morning, I got up early before I went to the campus to have a time with the Lord. At that time, we did not have the Holy Word for morning revival. We just had the Bible. And it, it, and it was the King James Version. We didn't have the recovery version. But that morning, I read these two verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Something happened to me that day. I don't know why. I don't know why. As soon as I read these two verses... I began to weep. I got on my knees and I told the Lord, Lord, for the rest of my life, I will live to you and I will serve you. I didn't even know what it meant. Well, in 1982, four years later, Brother Lee began to speak about the matter of serving the Lord full-time. And he, he said this, he used these verses. I was sitting in the ministry meeting, Broly was sharing. He said, brothers and sisters, all of us, whether we have a job or we don't have a job, all of us must serve the Lord full-time. And then he explained what he meant. He said, to serve the Lord full time means we live to him. And he used these very verses. Can you imagine how I felt? Even at that meeting, I started to weep. I said, Lord, now I know you really called me to do that. And I know that decision I made in 1978 was the right decision. Because... I did decide I'm taking this way. I don't care what it costs me. And thank the Lord. He gave me a Deborah who also wanted to take that way. And I hope you would be that way in, with whoever the Lord may put you with. And if you don't marry or if you are unmarried or if you are widowed, you still need to live to him as one who serves him. You still need to make a resolution in your heart. You still need to make a plan, a plan to live to him. Now, that plan to live to him, I want to be practical. It means you have to make choices that allow you to live to him. We make choices. You know, I had a very, very good job 
when I worked in the secular world, but I intentionally never changed my lifestyle. I never bought a better house. I never bought a better car. I never bought better anything. In fact, anything I had extra, I gave it away. So when the time came to drop my job, no problem, because I never lived for that job. And that was my plan. That was my plan. Every time I have moved in the last 40 years, every time I got a cheaper house, not a more expensive house. Who does that? A person who has a plan does that. I drive an old car. I'm happy to tell you, I drive an old car. It runs just fine. It gets me to the meetings. I'm just fine. That was part of my plan. I'd rather spend money on books than cars. So my point is, sisters, first have a decision what your human life will be. Maybe you will say, Lord, make me today's Deborah. I like to be useful to you the way Deborah was. And I'll pay the price to do it. Help me devise a plan to live to you. He would like to do, he would like to do that very, very much. Okay, now, last point. We need to aspire and pray. That's what I just said. We need to aspire and pray to be like those whom Deborah describes at the end of her song, which concludes in a glorious way. May those who love him be like the sun when it rises in its might. Amen. The Lord be with you, my sisters. Grace be with you. May he make every one of you a real Deborah. Okay, I will stop here. <laughs>